Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible thanks to our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board. And I'm reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions, y'all. On today's show, Maya Bloomberg, the Heme NP, mm-hmm. is back with another bite-sized segment, this time on sexual health. She yes. has five tips for intimacy that you are not going to want to miss. Yes. Mark Skinner joins for the latest I'm Fine Entrenched Thinking segment, brought to you by Sanofi. Shemophilia. We have a third. Is this our third? I think it's our, our third. third teaser from the Shemophilia Project yep. brought to you by Chess. And lastly, Kevin Mills and Pat Mancini join me to discuss, of all things, artificial intelligence in healthcare. It's coming. It's here. And so are they. Crazy. We have got all that and more on this episode. Welcome to Bloodstream. Hey, listeners. Thank you for joining us. We've got a stacked episode we today. Do. And if you like what you hear, which I think you will on this one, uh, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to all of the things wherever you listen to your podcast. I also want to remind you, dear listeners, that the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. <laughs> Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Mm -hmm. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Amy Board, did you know that? I did know that. Oh, okay. Listeners, did you? And they are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey. Wherever on that journey they may be, you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, though I doubt you need it, bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. Oh my gosh, PJL, we have literally the coolest episode of stuff. And this is a lot of great stuff. We got sexual intimacy. We got artificial intelligence. Uh, we've got, what else do we have? We, we got Mark crazy. Skinner talking I'm fine mindset. Mark Skinner, well, we'll get to this I know, later. But Mark like, Skinner is a legend. It's a big deal. We got the Shemophilia teaser. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's chock full. There's really no time for nonsense today, Amy. <laughs> Which is a bummer. Yeah. I, I I know like at least three listeners who collectively sighed a sadness. Yeah. Well, look, it'll come back. <laughs> Amy and I, we've got a bunch of episodes left this yeah, year. Yeah, and yeah. especially as we get toward the holidays, Amy and I just may be spending a lot of time yes. in this studio together. Yes. We'll, we'll find out. Um, but our very first segment is the Maya Bloomberg segment, and it is brought to you by Genentech. The Genentech Patient Foundation is dedicated to making sure that people with hemophilia A can get access to treatment. No matter what type of health insurance you have, and even if you have none at all, there may be some potential options available to help you afford your medicine. To learn more about these resources, visit hemophiliaaccess.com. One more time, that is hemophiliaaccess.com. So y'all, like we said, Maya Bloomberg, the Heme NP is back. She's back with another bite-sized segment. And this time she's on the topic of sexual health. Why are you whispering? Because sexual health, you can't speak about that in like a full voice. You can? No, you can't. She explains during the segment. Oh, good. Okay. Let's take a listen. (laughs) When's the last time your provider assessed your sexual health? 
While we know that chronic conditions affect all aspects of one's health, including our sexual health, and addressing that is equally as important as your physical health if we're trying to treat a patient holistically. Now, quick disclaimer, viewer discretion is advised since we will be discussing certain intimacy-related topics. So if you're under 13, please leave the room. Let's discuss five tips to enhance your intimacy and make your experiences a little more enjoyable. Number one, communication is key. Be open and honest when discussing your concerns and insecurities. Maybe you're a little self-conscious because you're having joint pain or mobility issues from repeated joint bleeds causing hemophilic arthropathy or arthritis. Maybe you have anemia or signs of a low blood count that cause shortness of breath and issues with endurance when getting intimate. Or maybe you're self-conscious about your appearance. Maybe you have scars from a port or from joint replacement surgeries. But at the end of the day, having effective communication ultimately translates to higher relationship and intimacy satisfaction. Number two, explore different positions. Yes, we're going there. And I think the best approach is to have the conversation from a place of curiosity to keep it light and fun. Different positions apply different pressure and strain on your joints. Say your target joint is your shoulder or your elbow. Assuming a position like missionary where you're on top can put a lot of strain on those joints and actually result in a bleed. If your hip is a target joint, then having a position where you're gonna have it flexed the entire time could put additional strain on that joint as well. So safer positions could be sideline or on your back, but something to keep in mind for sure. Number three, support your joints. This one's pretty self-explanatory, but you can use pillows, towels, blankets rolled up and use it to support whatever your problem joint might be to alleviate some of that pressure. Number four, take it slow and listen to your body. Give yourself time to get your body ready. This could be prioritizing foreplay to just enhance the arousal and reduce some discomfort. This also will reduce your risk of injury and triggering a bleeding episode. Take breaks when needed and listen to your body if it gives you any cues that you need to slow down and prevent overexerting yourself. And again, make sure to communicate with your partner with what works best for you, what feels best, and what pace is best for both you and your partner and make adjustments as necessary. Having a chronic condition changes the entire dynamic of a relationship, especially when partners turn to caregivers. Consider couples counseling even before having issues and talk to your provider who can help you navigate your unique situation. Remember, you are not alone with this and don't be afraid to have the conversation. For all you know, your partner's gonna be more open to it than you expect. Well, I heard nothing about whispering, <laughs> but there were five great tips in there. There were, there's always five tips of phenomenal things whenever Maya's involved. So thank you, Maya, for that, that was awesome. Maya also mentioned that a couple can always consider counseling, yes. which I'm gonna use as a chance to shout out Bleeding Disorders community member, certified sex therapist, and Bloodstream Media podcast host, Sarah Watson. Yes, yes, yes. She doesn't know I'm doing this, by the way. <laughs> Shout out to The Flow Podcast. It's available everywhere. And if you would like to set up a consultation with Sarah, if you would like to meet with a certified sex therapist to discuss your sexual health, intimacy, she is available. You can check out her website. That's Sarah with an H, Watson L pc.com sarah watson lpc.com and there will be a link in the program notes i also have to mention that this month's episode of the global hemophilia report 
is dedicated to sexual health. And yeah. some, Amy Board, yeah. some say it's our best episode to date. It's a phenomenal episode and really important um, kind of, you know, weighing the kind of pros and cons of having sexual health a part of the comprehensive care um, package that we have in the hemophilia bleeding disorder space. Um, what does that mean? Why is it important? Um, you know, people just shy away from that, you know, aspect of being a human and being an adult. So anyway, great episode. So Sarah Watson, LPC.com and Global Hemophilia Report.com. They're your two post segment shout outs. And thank you, Maya, for another Always. excellent yes, segment. Yes, yes, yes. We'll move now into the I'm Fine segment this month, Amy Board. Uh, PJL. And I'll let you know, earlier this week, on Wednesday, I had the privilege of hosting the NBDF Wednesday webinar. Don't brag. I can't help myself. <laughs> I hosted a webinar. Huge it's show. really important. It um, is. It, it's on the topic. It's actually it is. It is. And it's on the topic of I'm fine. I'm fine. And it was basically into doing the same thing as this segment on this show is here to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it featured some of my favorites and bloodstream yeah. media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, stalwarts like Connie Montgomery, Mosey Williams, Ivan Coron. Just phenomenal. A bunch of heavy hitters All right there. Stars. NBDF's. Right um, Chief Medical Officer Mike Recht was there, right. who could give some medical and clinical input. I love Dr. Recht. And the person who really started me thinking about this topic in a deep way for the first time, Mark Skinner. He was there, too. That is <laughs> He's a legend. <laughs> he is a legend. Yeah. And he's a fountain of knowledge and expertise in the hemophilia community. And I strongly recommend listeners head on over to hemophilia.org and okay. follow links to watch the replay of the I'm Fine Wednesday webinar from October 11th. But only after you listen to today's segment, which features none other than Mark Skinner and highlights, amongst other things, the incredible power of fear in behavior modification. Listeners, I'm Fine aims to challenge entrenched ideas around chronic resiliency and satisfaction with suboptimal outcomes by inspiring people with hemophilia to seek education and truly consider the possibilities. Sanofi seeks to expand the idea of what's possible for the hemophilia community. Take a look at the science behind hemophilia and an important connection between factor activity levels and potential activities at levelsmatter.com. Now on to the I'm Fine segment with Mark Skinner. This is all I've ever known. Is that even possible for me? I don't want to miss anything. I don't need that. I don't want to acknowledge my pain. Fine. I don't want to get poked with needles. I don't, I don't want that. that. There's nothing wrong. I'm fine. 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 Did you know that nine out of 10 people with hemophilia aspire to be active or very active? Did you know that two out of three people with hemophilia cannot participate in activities that they would like to? And did you know that three out of four people with hemophilia modify activities based on their fear of bleeds, pain, and joint damage? This round of Did You Know in Hemophilia was brought to you by Hemactive. Hemactive, a study you should know about. But for real, though, those are some pretty heavy-hitting data points from the Hemactive study. Nine out of 10 people with hemophilia aspire to be active or very active, but two-thirds cannot participate in activities that they want to, and three-quarters adjust based on fear. Mark Skinner, a friend and fellow person with hemophilia, is the first person who really got me thinking about how chronic resilience and entrenched thinking could be quite insidious. In fact, much of the language that I use to describe the I'm fine mindset 
originally comes from Mark. Mark joins me today to provide some top-notch insights as it relates to hemophilia, mindset, and possibilities. Mark, thanks for joining me today. If you could set the stage for us, what does the standard of care in hemophilia look like today as opposed to when you were born? And where exactly does mindset and resilience come into play? When I was born, treatment didn't exist. It hadn't, uh, it hadn't been discovered. But treatment has evolved from treating the disease now for the opportunity to treat the individual. Personalized treatment is the standard of care today. And what this data tells us is that individual goals and aspirations don't necessarily align with what's actually uh, happening within uh, the clinical setting or in our daily living, that we have aspirations and goals that go beyond. Uh, I think the data also has told us that, that we're a resilient community. While it's great to be resilient, uh, we really shouldn't have to fit our lives into our hemophilia, but it would really be better to live our lives and figure out how we need to manage our hemophilia so we can achieve uh, the richest possible life. So uh, I guess in short, the way I like to say it is, it's not really a matter of just being alive, but the goal really should be uh, to live life. It's well known that hemophilia leads to joint and muscle bleeds, joint deterioration, pain. The osteopathic implications of hemophilia are pretty well understood. But what has your work uncovered about the true psychological burden of hemophilia on patients and families? We've learned a lot about the psychosocial burden on individuals living with hemophilia and uh, on families and caregivers. But we haven't really understood all of the elements that go behind that. So what the HemActive study actually wanted to do was to, was to dig under the hood and see if we could tease out what is actually making a difference. And what came through to us is the reason that individuals are making these compromises is, um, uh, is fear and anxiety. Uh, it is the fear of a bleed, it is the fear of pain, it is the fear of long-term joint damage that causes people to make uh, compromises uh, and the anxiety associated with that. Um, and so what we were hoping is that through this study that we would gain knowledge. So with the knowledge then, individuals would be empowered to, to speak freely with their healthcare professionals about what's important to them, what matters to them, and through having this open dialogue and perhaps goal sharing that we could personalize the treatment to overcome those barriers so that the fear and anxiety is actually recognized and it's managed and then that there's alignment uh, on how to, uh, to accommodate it. Fear and anxiety, you note, are real drivers of behavior modification for people with hemophilia even more so than previously experienced bleeding. In other words, the fear of a bleed is more powerful than the experience of a bleed when we're thinking about behavior modification. What do you make of that piece of data? Typically, we have looked at health outcomes for individuals with hemophilia, or historically, uh, how many times have you had a bleed? How many joints did you have that are involved? And those are clinical metrics. Those are things that are measured in the clinic room. Those aren't the things that make me uh, an individual. Uh, you know, I'm a whole person, that I have a life. I want to go to school. I want to have a family. I want to get a job. I want to go on you know, vacations and do things that uh, are, are of interest to me. 
And when you're afraid or you have limitations or you have anxiety about those, you make compromises. You may not be able to participate in the sports and activities. You may have to do them alone and not participate in sort of team activities. You may not go on the kind of uh, summer vacation that you want because you can't go hiking. Uh, you choose a more sedentary vacation. You pick a career that's at a desk versus an active vacation. All of these little kinds of compromises that we accept as normal uh, are somewhat insidious. Uh, and it is because that we have this learned behavior from the time that we are born that we need to make adjustments, we need to plan, and if not, you know, we risk uh, significant joint damage and disability uh, and, uh, and perhaps an early retirement because of health restrictions. So it, it's that fear that is sort of ingrained in us that um, I think is important to tease out uh, because we now have the tools to actually um, manage hemophilia far differently uh, than we uh, did previously. To your point, Mark, we have the tools to manage hemophilia far different than before, but we also still have hemophilia. I don't want to get stuck in an I'm fine mindset accepting suboptimal outcomes. I don't want to get stuck in a pattern of habituated thinking, but I also want to be appropriately cautious and conscientious of the fact that I do have hemophilia. So I guess from one blood brother to another... Where's the line between responsible self-care and fear-based, life-limiting decision-making? One of the questions that I love to debate with, uh, with Bread Brothers, as you say, is, you know, am I who I am today because of or in spite of my hemophilia? You know, has, has hemophilia made me stronger, given me opportunities? Has it taken me in directions that never would have been possible or perhaps in my, my wheelhouse of interest uh, early on in life? Um, and, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer to that. But I think part of the answer lies in, you know, I really don't know, and, and maybe there's no such thing, but, but I don't know what a normal life is. Really, from the time I was born, my parents uh, adapted, you know, um, what was normal and acceptable for me, and I just accepted it uh, throughout. Um, you know, there clearly there have been aha moments for me as I moved along. Um, unlike you, the back of my baseball card's pretty full. I've, I've now had over a dozen orthopedic surgeries and, uh, and a host of the other complications that came with living uh, with hemophilia. And, and that won't be the case for people that are born today. Uh, but, but I clearly made career decisions. Uh, I, I had a strong interest in going into the foreign service and working globally and only later in life, through my work with the World Federation of Hemophilia, was I able to fulfill that sort of longing and desire um, because I, I couldn't accept an international appointment because my health wouldn't allow it. So I was sort of destined to, you know, a career civil service job at a desk, you know, you know, sitting, you know, at home here in the U.S. And if I really wanted to pursue pursue that, uh, I needed to. But I learned to adapt. You know, we're remarkable. Um, you know, I had strong parents, as I expect you did, that sort of helped channel us. They identified our interests. And I don't really have regrets looking back on childhood. But as you sort of pick it apart, you know that there are those conscious decisions um, that you've made. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. You know, we, we can really begin to think about what really was previously uh, unimaginable. Mark, thank you for your time and insights. You've shared a tremendous amount. Before we go, any parting thoughts for the audience? We have the right to be heard. Uh, we're in an era when patient-centered care matters and the patients really should be at the center of all decisions. 
Uh, so don't shy away from the courage of your convictions. What matters to you as an individual should matter to your healthcare professionals and ultimately should be reflected in the decisions that are made and the treatments that you choose. Um, it will be a, a different era as we move forward, and what you've known in the past should not limit uh, what you can imagine for your future. Um, treatment uh, will be tailored, treatment will be personalized, and that's ultimately what we want is for our treatment to allow us to be the individual that we want to be. So I, I can't imagine um, a more exciting time. Hemophilia severity is determined by factor activity levels, a measurement of how much factor you have in your blood at time of diagnosis. The more factor you have in your body over time, the better your bleed protection is, which is why many people with hemophilia choose to treat prophylactically. Your doctor can perform measurements to evaluate the factor activity levels in your blood. Learn more about the importance of factor activity levels by talking to your doctor and visiting levelsmatter.com. Sanofi aims to raise the bar for patients living with hemophilia. Reimagine what's possible by visiting rareblooddisorders.com to hear more about Sanofi's dedication to the bleeding disorders community. Being in a position to, as Mark put it, think about what really was previously unimaginable is exciting. It's also scary. Pushing into the unknown, even a good unknown, can be scary. It can be easier in the short term to retreat to an I'm fine mindset, to dismiss the discovered possibilities as not for me. And when we do that, we limit ourselves. We limit our lives. Thanks to the work of Mark and his colleagues on studies like HemActive, we now have more and more data to support the importance of treating the whole person, including that person's mental health. We have more and more data to substantiate the true psychological burden of hemophilia, along with indications as to what drives that burden. With this data comes the opportunity for more nuanced and personalized shared decision-making conversations with providers, which ultimately leads to more opportunity and better quality of life for the patient. For more on the HemActive study and Mark's work, take a look at the links in the program notes. And for more mental health resources, visit mentalhealthmatters2.com. Thank you to Mark Skinner for joining me today, and thank you to Sanofi for supporting this segment. Subscribe to Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen, and we'll be back with another installment of I'm Fine next time. Y'all, Sanofi aims to raise the bar for patients living with hemophilia. Reimagine what's possible by visiting rarebloodddisorders.com to hear more about Sanofi's dedication to the bleeding disorder community. I loved that segment. Thank you. It was very good. So tell me again about your first visit to a healthcare professional and what happened. The very first was when I had my nose cauterized as a child, but... Um, Nothing ever was uh, suggested about hemophilia or bleeding disorders or anything. They just said that it was dryness in my nose. So fast forward through many uh, bruises and bleeding episodes throughout my life where I was just told that it was normal. That's what happened in our family. Um, I had quite a number of children. And after my very first, I was 22 and went into shock. And I was scared. I didn't know what was happening. And then I had the second one, the same thing happened. 
and we inquired, why am I going into shock? And they said, oh, it's just from the blood loss. And I asked if the blood loss was so severe, why weren't they doing anything about it? That clip featured Jessamine as part of the Comprehensive Hemophilia Education Services program titled She Mephilia. Now, you can do three practical things to help further the campaign for better treatment for women with bleeding disorders, which is so important. So, so important. listen up. Number one, you can sign the petition at change.org. Demand equity in health care for women. Number two, head on over to Chess Education backslash She dash feedback. Wow, we're going to put Link in that the in notes. the program notes. <laughs> you can submit your recommendations for good doctors and hospitals. This is very, very important to have a comprehensive list of um, patient-referred HCPs. And number three, sign the MASAC document 264 recommendations at hemophilia.org. And because we like you listeners, Uh, all three of those links will be in the program notes. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, Artificial intelligence. Uh, this one is so fantastic. It's like, it's like the moment we got to gene therapy being yeah, realized, yeah, yeah, it was like, well, yeah, now let's yeah. move on to this other big crazy thing we'll probably yeah, talk about nonstop for decades. Now, did you, I mean, set us up. How did you connect with these guys? So they'll give you a bit of their background. Okay, Both Kevin okay. Mills and Pat Mancini have backgrounds in bleeding disorders, and I've known them each for many years in different capacities. I was surprised when they first approached me about this, to be honest, because I had no idea why they wanted to talk to me about artificial intelligence and healthcare. I was like, what the heck do I have to offer this conversation? But what they were actually seeking were opportunities to talk to the community, to cool. see if the where was the community's knowledge, appetite, interest on this area of expertise for these two, in, these two individuals. So that conversation at BDC resulted in their coming on the podcast to discuss AI for what I don't believe will be, what will be the first time, but I don't believe will be the no, last time. No, no, no. So that is the background to this discussion. I will be honest as well in saying I knew very little about artificial intelligence and in, in, in healthcare and yeah. rare disease drug discovery. I still know very little about it. Yeah. But I was intimidated by it. Now I'm more curious and interested in it. So they, they've at least helped me move away from intimidation yeah. to curiosity. And hopefully they do the same for some of our listeners. Well, let's get to it. I can't wait. I can't wait. Here we go. Okay, listeners, I'm joined by Pat and Kevin now for this conversation on artificial intelligence. We've really come quite a ways here on Bloodstream Podcast. Artificial intelligence was not on the topics list when we launched the show in 2016, wasn't on the topics list in 2017, and that's something actually we're going to get into a little bit later. But before I go too far, Pat, Kevin, I want to give you each an opportunity to introduce yourself. I think a certain portion of listenership will be at least somewhat familiar with each of you, but some won't. So let's start with you, Pat, then we'll go to you, Kevin. Can you give us a little bit of your background and bleed? disorders and artificial intelligence. Absolutely. So I'm Pat, Pat Mancini. I am the dad of a 25-year-old with severe hemophilia. When he was diagnosed, I got involved with the community. And then soon after that, I became, um, took the job of chairman of the New England Hemophilia Association. That was a long time, 17 years, probably too long. And then I moved over to the National Hemophilia Foundation for about uh, two years for a single term. Uh, I am a healthcare and in general, I'm a technologist. So I've been working on solutions, uh, very uh, complicated IT solutions, healthcare solutions for many, many years with large companies, small companies, and healthcare and AI is a particular passion for me. So uh, I'm so happy to be here and talking about it today. Thank you, Pat. And over to you, Kevin. 
Uh, I'm Kevin Mills. I am a molecular biologist by background. I have spent my entire career in, uh, in basic and translational science in uh, hematology research. I have been in academic science and also in the biotechnology industry. I've spent my career really trying to use the tools of modern biology, molecular biology, genetics, and now AI to discover new approaches to better healthcare, better therapies for people with blood disorders, uh, including cancer and bleeding disorders like hemophilia. I began my career in academic research and have uh, spent many years also in biotechnology discovering new drugs uh, to treat a host of different blood disorders. Uh, I spent a few years at the National Hemophilia Foundation, now the National Bleeding Disorders Foundation, and uh, have uh, a long-time association with the New England Hemophilia Association as well. And I've seen the power of AI, especially with recent uh, innovations, to really advance concepts and quality of, of healthcare and uh, discovery science. And so really happy to team up with Pat to try to to uh, talk about some of the implications of AI in, in the field of hematology. It's exciting to hear you talk about it. It's clear that this is an area of passion. I want to take a, a little bit of a step back, though, and make sure that we all know what we're talking about. So AI, artificial intelligence, its we hear about it a lot now, but what actually is it? And is everyone who's using the term AI referring to the same thing? So, Pat, let's start with you. What is AI, and are we all talking about the same thing? Well, we're not talking about the same thing, but let's normalize it a little bit. So to, to make it simple, right, AI is really artificial, uh, is the science of making machines that can think like humans. That's really the simplest explanation. The difference between AI, machines, and people is that machines can learn much faster with large amounts of data. So uh, if you think about when a machine is trying to come up with a medical diagnosis, for example, or predictive analytics, machines can read hundreds of thousands of pages of information in a very short amount of time. A doctor, a physician, a, your average person couldn't look at PubMed and read all you know, 7,000 articles in an hour. And so that amount of, of data and magnitude provides a machine with different capabilities that humans don't have. So that's really the, the simplest explanation. Are we all talking about the same thing? Not at all, right? Because some people think about AI as my uh, Alexa, right? Uh, very simple, kind of uh, one-dimensional, if you will, AI, which uh, our calendar, right? Intelligence on the calendar. But other people are thinking about things like predictive analytics and drug discovery and deep learning and machine learning. So there are different nuances uh, across the board so we're all talking about something a little bit different. However, the common thread here is that people have been influenced by the, the mainstream things like chat GPT. So since that's come along, everybody conveniently can use the buzzword, you know, AI, right? Because it's now mainstream. And so that's where we are in terms of how it's evolved, you know, very quickly. So Kevin, I want to give you a chance to respond to that, but coming off of that chat GPT point, Pat, you know, as I was saying earlier, when we started Bloodstream five years ago, even three years ago, it did not seem as though there was all this conversation about artificial intelligence in general, no less within healthcare and the bleeding disorders community. 
And now it seems like it's absolutely everywhere. And so, Kevin, my question is why? What happened? The introduction of ChatGPT and the mainstreaming of some AI tool sounds like maybe it had something to do with it. Is that the whole story? Or what has led to AI being so seemingly ubiquitous now? Well, certainly tools like ChatGPT, you know, and, and others, uh, IBM Watson before that, are are things that have kind of hit the, the public mainstream consciousness and really raised awareness of uh, the innovations and the new developments in, in AI. But uh, artificial intelligence has, uh, you know, quite a deep history before some of these, you know, these things that have really hit the mainstream right now. Uh, and it's been really kind of quietly, slowly transforming the way we do research and the way we, um, the way we develop, you know, new practices that deliver services for people. Like here, we're talking about healthcare services. Um, you know, and I'm thinking of that both in terms of delivery of healthcare, but also in terms of discovery of, mm. you know, new, new therapies, mm -hmm. new treatments. And, you know, wearing my molecular biology and drug discovery hat, there's been a real transformation in the way that an artificial intelligence and machine learning and sort of computer-driven discovery has accelerated um, and deepened our understanding of biology in a way that's allowed you know, really novel new therapies to, to come forward. So I think it's really a combination. I mean, to your, your initial question, I think it's a combination of uh, an increasing awareness of sort of everyday AI, the, the implications of AI for sort of our everyday lives, chat GPT, which by the way is amazing. I've played with it a lot and it's incredible. Um, but also these very deeply specialized purposes that are, are transforming our lives in lots of ways that maybe not be readily apparent, but are having huge impact. Um, I also wanted to make a, a comment to just add on to um, a little bit of what Pat just talked about. You know, I think one of the implications of, of AI in the realm that we're talking about right now and lots of other places too, frankly, is that, you know, it's distinct from human intelligence in the kinds of things that current artificial intelligence can do. Humans are really good at picking out creative patterns out of small amounts of data. Right. Hmm. So think about our ability to see the man in the moon or, or you know, uh, a bunny in the, the clouds. Um, what we're not good at and what artificial intelligence is really good at is picking out subtle patterns against the backdrop of huge amounts of data. So where our eyes may not be very good at spotting the, the uh, snowshoe hair in the snowdrift, AI can look at huge amounts of data and reliably identify those very subtle patterns in that big amount of data. And so AI is really complementary to what humans can do. doesn't replace what we can do um, because we have that sort of creative advantage. But AI can take giant amounts of data and see very hard to discern patterns within those giant amounts of data. And the two things together are really where the transformation. So as a follow-up to that, Kevin, that's intriguing to me. When you talked about being able to observe more subtle trends, immediately my brain went to micro-bleeding from a very 
hemophilic bleeding disorder centric point of view. And for how many years I have heard that part of the difficulty with micro bleeding or silent bleeding or subclinical bleeding, whatever exact term you want to put on this hard to identify bleeding, we use biomarkers and uh, joint health assessment tools to determine, oh, bleeding has occurred even if we didn't necessarily notice it along the way. So this is this long windup is to ask you, Kevin, does AI potentially offer us the ability to start identifying things such as microbleeding in ways that will enable us to actually uh, address it? I think it does. And I would go a step further than that. And I think with the right amount of input data into our AI algorithms, AI offers us an opportunity not only to identify microbleeding, but really to predict it, right? And to, to head mm -hmm. it off. I think we can rely on AI to look at, um, uh, uh, you know, patterns in huge amounts of seemingly unrelated health data. Mm -hmm. And it, it requires data, right? AI is not going to work where we don't have a sufficient amount of data. But if we can ingest large amounts of clinical data and demographic data and, you know, health history data, AI algorithms will help to begin to identify what what are the things that we couldn't predict that precede a microbleed or are associated with the microbleed or or are the consequences of a microbleed. And so I think AI is really going to help us not only identify those things, but but become predictive in a way that we simply could be without this, these kind of tools. So, Kevin, I think that's a great point. And um, there's a lot of promise in eliminating different types of practices, for example, radiology, right, where AI can now look at patterns, pattern recognition, large-scale data, and potentially eliminate the need to do radiology in some cases, right? And the same is true for uh, wow. patterns and bleeding disorders. So image and image identification, image analysis is one of the things that was early to emerge in the AI world, and that is definitely part of the um, I think the future for this for what you're talking about. Yeah. So along those lines, you know, my we're kind of already addressing my next question here about what are the opportunities for AI to be used in healthcare, and we've already kind of gotten more specific with discussing some some uses of it in in bleeding disorders specific healthcare management. But let, I want to zoom back out to that larger question about healthcare and maybe refine the question a little bit. Where are we right now in the introduction of artificial intelligence? to the healthcare world in, in a large-scale way. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're at a point where we're about to enter the starting blocks for application of AI tools to transform healthcare. One of the challenges is, you know, as we talked about, AI is most powerful when it has lots of data to discern those subtle patterns. And there's lots of healthcare data out there there's lots of health records and there's, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, parameters of our, our, you know, sort of our own personal health history and group health history. One of the challenges is being able to integrate and harmonize all of those data, mm -hmm. right? They're collected in lots of different places with lots of different systems. So they're not always, um, you know, coherent and, there are ways around that. There are certainly ways to be able to integrate across kind of diverse data sets um, and to to uh, 
compensate for some of the gaps in those, right? Uh, there's ways to sort of insert the frog DNA into the dinosaur genome, hmm. if you will. Um, but it's not perfect, right? And the perfect situation would be if we had ways of comprehensively integrating all of those data. And so I think where we're at right now is on the precipice of a, a large-scale um, introduction of AI into the healthcare system. And there's sort of two things that need to happen. One of those is still some advancement in the AI tools, right? I mean, relative to where we'll be in a decade from now, they're still relatively mm. primitive. And then the other one is finding ways to coalesce all of those data in a way that's maximally useful mm. to these tools, right? And we're trending that way. We're doing that. We're, we're doing those things. But I would say we're just at the precipice of, of, of getting to where we need to to really realize the power of these tools. That makes sense. Pat, anything you want to add to that? Oh, if only we had an hour or two to talk about this. <laughs> there's so much to say here, right? I think this, if we want to talk hemispheres, right, there's one hemisphere that's the clinical research side, which of course always has better access and advancements to technology. And then there's the, the patient side, right, where that eventually makes its way down. And on the clini clinical side, the research side, there's huge amounts of um, already proven use, right? For example, research uh, with AI, AI on uh, joint replacements and how they've performed statistical predictive analytics on the durability uh, outcomes and things like that. Uh, there's also a lot of work being done, as Kevin, as you know, this is your, your space too, in um, real-world evidence, the intersection of real-world evidence and drug discovery, where that meets in the, the, the cycle of refinement of that information to drive toward either mm -hmm. novel discoveries that are new drugs or even repurposing existing drugs using AI to find compounds, chemicals, right, different combinations, and looking at past information, real-world evidence to, to bring that together, to coalesce, as you say, Kevin, right? all that information together. Now, when it comes to the consumer side, or I say consumer because it's my community perspective, but the patient side, that makes its way down, but it's a harder sell, right? Because what we talk to patients about is the only way that we can really do this in a, in a, in a big bang way is to get data. And so we always want people, we encourage people to contribute their data in registries. What I would like to see is uh, much more data collection outside of the U.S. in other parts of the world, because let's remember that more than 90% of the hemophilia exists outside of the U.S., right? So a lot of the valuable golden nuggets of information that are going to lead us to the outcomes in the two hemispheres are based on harnessing that data that's coming from other parts of the world. So that, that for me, is like the utopia uh, which I know is something we might talk about. Uh, I'd certainly like to, but that—that's those are my—that's my my, uh, my input. Like again, if we had hours to to talk about it, it would be wonderful. Well, who's to say we won't have future opportunities, Pat? I have a feeling we're going right. to be meeting the three of us and doing podcast episodes like this for a while now. <laughs> Great. Yeah. That, well. that being said, I want to I, I want to come back to thinking about it from. You know, use the word consumer and and that that patient and patient family perspective again. As someone who's not 
um, very technologically savvy, who has some amount of science, but not a lot. You know, it's easy for me to be fearful or dismissive when I hear about AI and when I hear about use of technology in novel ways, because I don't understand it as, as well as some other things. So it's just easier for me to go to a place of fear. And then as I hear people like the two of you speak specifically, I get a little more education, I start to have more understanding. But what I'm actually finding happening just in the course of this brief dialogue, and it mirrors previous conversations the three of us have had, is that I'm both getting excited and overwhelmed as I hear you talk about this bit of technology, it's clear that there's power. It's clear it could add value. Uh, even if I can't appreciate all the details, that headline is clear to me. I think what that leads me to, though, is because it is exciting and overwhelming, because most patients and family members aren't going to have expert level understanding of the technology or its implication or the healthcare system as it stands today, what is it from your perspectives? Uh, and Pat, we'll start with you. What is it from your perspectives that the average patient family community member should be thinking about right now when it comes to artificial intelligence and its potential role in the future of their bleeding disorders care? What are your thoughts on that, Pat? Being in the community and uh, learning from others, I always think about what could someone learn about me that could help me? So that is, I think that's the question, right? I, I am who I am. These are my characteristics. These are my, this is my profile. How could somebody learn from me and that would ultimately benefit me? And that is the real question. And how I think of it is that contributing um, as much data about people in the community as possible is a key element. And that's why the community-driven research approach makes so much sense because it's all about the community and all about the people in the community. And I think that's, at the, on the surface, that's how I think about it, really. Mm -hmm. And then I go to quality of life uh, issues. So how could my life be improved with AI? Well, we already know that there's lots of research uh, about things, something as simple as exercise and um, weight training. We already know there's lots of research there, but how much more could we learn about uh, habits, uh, daily life, that we don't know today. We have a lot of information, but we don't have all, have all of it, right? More information that we have, we can learn. We can then get to understand how quality of life issues can be improved. And it's all about how can, how can I become better and how can I help people understand more about me and my profile, and which might lead to some customization, you know, tailored uh, designer approach, right? Medicine or care uh, to make my life uh, better. Mm. That makes good sense to me. Kevin, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's two, I think two possibly interrelated issues here. And I think it's, it, it sort of built on a little bit of what Pat just mentioned. I think one of those is, you know, we talked a bit about the power of AI to sort of find patterns in big data. But I think the other uh, real promise of AI, and, you know, I, again, right at the sort of early days of this, but it's also accelerate change right i mean think about the way we think about you know traditional clinical trials you know from the start of a clinical trial to the the day that there's a an approved product could be 10 years and so somebody who wishes to participate in clinical research you know is is helping to drive the research but may not realize the benefit from the outcome of that research for a decade or 
maybe ever. AI has the potential to shorten the timeline so that the data you contribute today, tomorrow could really benefit you mm. directly, right? You or your family directly. And so it's, it's not just about novel discoveries. It's also about accelerating the pace at which we deliver mm. solutions. And so I think that's an important aspect for people to understand that that's a big part of the power of what computational technology mm. can do. There's another element of this too, which, you know, as Pat has emphasized, all of these approaches require input of data, right? They require healthcare records. They require insurance reimbursement records. They require individual health data. And so to realize the full power of AI discovery, it's incumbent to collect individual health data. But there's a risk in that, right? There's a privacy risk in that. And people are, I think, rightly nervous about contributing their personal data, particularly into a system where it's not clear what mm -hmm. the output will be. And so I think we need, in addition to developing the AI tools, we need to develop the systems that create a comfort zone with providing those data, right? Like, I'm a big proponent of AI, and even I am not totally sure how comfortable I am with sort of liberating my data into this ecosystem. Right, my personal health That's data helpful to hear. ecosystem. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, possibly more comfortable than some, but maybe less comfortable than others. And so, I think we need those two systems, right? We need a, a sort of a transformation in the technology, but we need a transformation in the systems that allow people to provide their data with a level of comfort um, and privacy as a part of that. And I think ultimately, when the community sees tangible impact from these, it'll it'll be more tangible. It'll feel more real that these technologies really are providing benefit. That makes a ton of sense. And we, we've we just scratched the surface in our, our time together. So again, this is a kickoff more so than any sort of exhaustive or definitive conversation about AI, AI in healthcare, AI in bleeding disorders. So I'll ask one more question for now. Uh, Kevin, we'll start with you and Pat will give you the last word. If you could, as of right now, wave a magic wand and over the next, let's say, two to three years, we'll put the time horizon there, but you can change it if you want for your answer. What would you like to see happen as far as AI and healthcare goes, and maybe specifically with regard to people with inheritable bleeding disorders over the next two to three years? Kevin, what would you like to see happen? Oh, gosh, that's such a softball question. I would love to see. Um, the There's a tremendous amount of of, of almost unutilized data that's already been collected. I would love to see us in the next couple of years, and I think over the next two to three years, it's not a crazy timeline, to pull, to encircle all of those data, pull them together, and begin trying these AI tools on those data to do things exactly like what you brought up earlier. Can we begin to predict microbleeds or, or other events that are meaningful for people that translate into immediate solutions, right? There are lots of other long-range implications, right? In the next 10 years, I'd like to see AI tools help to drive new drug discovery. In the next 30 years, I'd like to see it transform the way people are living with a bleeding disorder. But I think in the next two to five years, by overlaying AI on existing data that's mm. really underutilized, but has been collected, 
we can begin to demonstrate that these these things make a real difference, and I think we can make an impact for the way people are living, you know, in two to three years from now. That's cool and very specific. I like that. Pat, what about you? What would you like to see happen, or what do you think could happen in the next two to three years? Kevin and I are very similar in our, in our thoughts on, on this track. I would take it a little bit uh, further, and I, I think what I'd love to see is more aggressive policy on data registry across the world. I do really believe that a lot of the information that we are going to find out and lead us to novel insights is in other places, right? In other parts of the world. We don't have, that's hard to do, right? At the moment, it's hard to get registries set up and get people to contribute data. That's one aspect of it. And I would agree, uh, the, the possibilities are mind boggling. And three years is like maybe six months in the world of speed, right? The way we, uh, we're living today. The other part of this I'd love to see is Kevin and I talk a lot about clinical trials, but clinical trials is really something that can, can help. And this goes to your previous question about outcomes and um, what we'd like to see. Clinical trials can accelerate um, solutions and discoveries and cures. And it's a very slow process now. Um, if we can use AI to accelerate the clinical trial process, we have some outcomes that are, are immediate, right? We reduce adverse potential for adverse effects in the clinical trial. We can get uh, therapies to people faster. We can learn more in the process, and we can use the intelligence of AI uh, as velocity and, and, and move faster. And so it's all, everything today is about speed. And that's, that's, that would be my three-year. Pat Mancini and Kevin Mills, you have a, a lot of things in your professional history and portfolio, but I think as far as Bloodstream's concerned, you'll now be the AI guys. So I'll tell listeners that we'll be having the AI guys back on before too long because, yeah, to Kevin's earlier point, we're just approaching the starting blocks. This is the tip of the iceberg. So, um, Pat, Kevin, any final comments before we wrap? I'll just comment. I can't wait to come back on and, uh, and keep uh, keep talking about what this could do. I'm really enthusiastic about where these technologies are going and what they can do for people. And that's really what this is about. Yeah, I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity. And I would just say um, the danger is that you might get tired of us talking all, all the time. So, uh, something to be cautious about. Fair but enough. Well, you. that is also where the editor comes in handy. So yeah. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that as we need to. But again, Pat Mancini, Kevin Mills, thanks so much for joining us. And for now, we'll leave it there. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, Pat, Jessamine, Mark, and Maya for participating on today's episode of Bloodstream, which of course would not be possible without our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Visit bleedingdisorders.com. Thanks as well to Sanofi for supporting the I'm Fine segment. Visit levelsmatter.com to learn more. And thanks as well to Genentech. Visit hemophiliaaccess.com to learn more about your access and resources. All right, Amy Board, Bloodstream will be back next on October 27th. What can listeners expect to hear on October 27th? I don't want to say it. Every hemophilia nurse will be mad at me if I say it. Wow, what? What? Literally, I'll get calls. Oh, my God. Okay. That is, that's compelling. I'll give you a hint. I'll take it. Rugby. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I could see why the nurses might not like that. I'll get calls. Yeah. Well...
That's compelling. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. I'm just saying. So just tune in. If you want to know what Amy's going to say to upset all the nurses and blow up her phone for the next few weeks, yep. come on back October 27th for that episode. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so that you will have it the moment it goes live. That would be great. Hey, loyal listeners, as always, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com is where you can bug us. That's where. That's where. <laughs> you can send all of your questions, all of your concerns, all of your thoughts, and even inquire about casting opportunities we are casting all the time feel free to share your story here on the podcast or um, in our video or documentary film so please do that and find us on social media follow us on social media feel free to reach out on social media we would love to hear uh, how you are doing in your world with that that is all for this episode i'm your host patrick james lynch and i am your other host amy board and until next time take self-care of yourself bye everybody bye-bye know that I, I told that uh, I don't want to stay on parade, but I've bleeping want to stay on parade. This is the best. <laughs>